Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Can He Do That listeners, it's Carol Alderman, the producer of this podcast. Allison can't be here for this week's episode, but she has a very good reason. Unfortunately, she broke her hand. Don't worry, she's okay, but it does mean that there won't be a regular Can He Do That episode this week. But, as luck would have it, we just announced a brand new podcast from Lillian Cunningham, who you know from the Presidential and Constitutional podcasts. It's called Moonrise. And if you think you know the story of why the United States went to the moon, think again. Take a listen to the trailer and sign up wherever you listen to podcasts to get the Moonrise series as soon as it's released. And then, if you still want to get your politics fix, stick around after the trailer for a very Can He Do That segment from the Post's premier daily podcast, Post Reports. Host Martine Powers looks at developments in the U.S. relationship with Iran this week and what it says about President Trump's approach to foreign policy. But first, here's the trailer for Moonrise. Its conquest deserves the best of all mankind. And its opportunity for peaceful cooperation may never come again. But why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? We all recognize this. And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? One of the most iconic American presidential addresses of all time. Why 35 years ago, fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. A masterpiece of politicking. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. This speech is the classic explanation you've heard for why we went to the moon. Why, for a decade, the United States invested billions of dollars into racing the Soviets to a desolate rock spinning around our planet. The reason President Kennedy gave, because it was hard, a challenge, that's not the full story. Join me on a reporting journey to uncover the real why behind that decision. The full story is twisting, complex, dark, wild. It has so much more to tell us about the America we live in and about the dreams and nightmares of being human on this earth. You'll enter a world of declassified presidential documents and once secret recordings like this. He thinks, and I think, that space may be one of the things, if you approached it secretly and without too much fanfare in the open, that you might possibly have some kind of a... Of a, a 
sir? Agreement on. Yeah, well, you you and Khrushchev might be able to come closer together on this than many other matters. Yep. A world of space historians. The dream of going to the moon really is a lot older than people think. Astronauts. Yeah, I said, no way we're going to do that. We sort of hoo-hawed, you know, and uh, all of us uh, in our squadron. Presidential biographers. I mean, the, the three presidents had very different impacts on the program. And archivists. Good things come to those who wait. Uh, yeah, the, the whole process of, of declassifying information is, is, is complex. You'll also see how the dawn of modern science fiction pushed us toward a new science reality. And so we, in a real sense, we science fiction writers and readers, helped create the present world. You've probably heard a lot about the Apollo mission, the details about how we landed on the moon. Now, find out why we went there. I'm Lillian Cunningham with The Washington Post, and this is Moonrise. Coming summer 2019. Subscribe today for free wherever you get your podcasts and find out more about the launch at WashingtonPost.com slash Moonrise. You can subscribe to Moonrise right now on whatever podcast app you are listening to this on. Next up, a segment from our daily podcast, Post Reports. There's been a lot of news this week about the relationship between the United States and Iran. So host Martine Powers spoke with White House reporter Josh Dossie about President Trump's approach to foreign policy. Well, good afternoon. Uh, this is uh, Lieutenant General Joseph Guastella, commander of the U.S. Air Force's Central Command. Early Thursday morning, Iran shot down a U.S. surveillance drone flying near the Strait of Hormuz in the Persian Gulf. This was an unprovoked attack on a U.S. surveillance asset that had not violated Iranian airspace at any time during its mission. The U.S. officials have said that this was an act of hostility. Iranian officials say that their actions were justified. They argue that the drone had trespassed into their airspace. Iranian reports that this aircraft was shot down over Iran are categorically false. What's clear is that this is one more step in escalating tensions between the two countries. On Thursday, the chief commander of Iran's Revolutionary Guard said that while his country didn't intend to go to war, it was fully prepared for the possibility. So the president now has another dilemma to face. Josh Dossie covers the White House for The Post, and he's been watching how this most recent action by Iran has forced President Trump to navigate a very fine line. So there was a pretty ominous tweet this morning where he said Iran made a very big mistake. Uh, go ahead. Question. <laughs> no, Iran made a big mistake. But he seemed to de-escalate his language a few minutes ago in the Oval Office where he says... I think probably Iran 
made a mistake. I would imagine it was a general or somebody that made a mistake in shooting that drone down. It must have been an accident. They couldn't have done this deliberately. There was no man or woman in the drone. We would have treated differently had there been. And he seemed to give an opening for a way to not drive this up further. And I think to some extent, people might be surprised with how President Trump right. is responding to this because in some ways he he does seem like someone who's willing to make threats, willing to say that he's mm-hmm. going, that he's going to go all the way. But at the same time here and in other situations, you've seen that he's actually been quite reticent to take some kind of serious action. He is more cautious with the use of the military than many people would believe. His lesson from the Bush presidency and what he has seen as a reason in his mind Republicans have failed or they got involved in these wars. He said repeatedly he thinks the wars in the Middle East were the biggest mistake a president's ever made. He's a president whose instincts are not to go into more countries, not to have more wars, not to have more forceful conflicts unless he is driven to the you know extreme degree. I mean, even in Syria where there were terrible attacks on children— Chemical attacks, the president has authorized surgical strikes, but kind of one-time operations. So this is a president whose inclination is to stay out of any sort of war and to use enough bluster and enough sanctions and enough other tools to keep that from happening. That's what we're seeing him try to do here. You know, the United States has hurt the Iranian economy with sanctions pretty significantly. You know, Venezuela is struggling. North Korea is struggling. There are all of these sanctions that have been installed. I mean, you look, even 11 months ago, I actually was looking at it just a second ago, the president sent quite a tweet to Iranian President Rouhani. Never, ever threaten the United States again or you will suffer consequences the likes of which few throughout history have ever suffered before. We are no longer a country that will stand for your demented words of violence and death. Be cautious, in all caps. Whoa. So that's the kind of tweet. Remember with Kim Jong-un, he promised fire and fury like the world has never seen. And then he immediately kind of shapeshifts back to his best friend and defending him. Well, this conflict in Iran is particularly interesting because it's coming at an important moment, right? That that this is a time when President Trump wants to have some kind of significant foreign policy win to show voters in advance of the election. But it's also a time when he's really starting to turn his attention back home, focusing on the race, not wanting to be mired in the complexities of all these foreign conflicts. Right. And what his domestic priorities on Iran have been— been railing vociferously and to no end about the Iran deal that President Obama signed with the country and what a terrible deal it was. And back home on foreign policy, he has a bit of a complicated record to try and explain. You reported on a meeting that President Trump had, particularly to talk about Venezuela. And I think that it's interesting because it provides some insight about how President Trump thinks about these foreign policy challenges. Tell me more about that meeting. So on Venezuela, the president has grown disenchanted with his administration's on strategy. They told him that a campaign to topple Maduro and to install Juan Guaido, an opposition leader uh, in Venezuela, would work. It has not worked. Maduro still holds power. And the president felt that he had been overpromised by his own national security team, particularly John Bolton, and he let him know that, that he was very upset about that. Uh, the president is not someone with 
deep insight into the fabrics of many of these countries. And his own advisors would tell you that. So he's kind of trusting some of these folks against his own instincts to really not get involved in other countries. And, you know, when he gets led into one of these decisions, now to be clear, he he has to go along with it. I'm not saying he's not part of his own administration, but he's kind of trusting advisors when he goes against his own instincts. And when it hasn't worked out, there's been a lot of internal recriminations for the people who have pushed these strategies. So in the particular case of Iran, given the fact that President Trump is pretty wary of getting ensconced in some kind of conflict, what happens if Iran continues to escalate things? Several people who are close to the president have said to me, if Iran somehow kills American citizens or they fire on Americans or they attack Americans— president would be more likely to take an aggressive action. He would feel kind of compelled to. So far, he has been able to explain their conduct by minimizing it, by the first time saying that the tanker attack was very minor in his words. This time, maybe it was an accident. There were no men or women in the drone. But we're seemingly approaching a line where it will be harder for him to say not that we'll turn a blind eye to this, but, you know, proverbially, we'll, we'll not respond. And you're going to see an increasing crescendo of hawks on the right. Um, you're already seeing this today a bit, pushing him to do more, to do more, to do more. But what's so curious about President Trump's reaction to this is that he's giving Iran the benefit of the doubt, but that an Iranian military official is going up and saying, no, we, we intended to shoot down this right. drone. Well, it seems that the president right now is looking for a way not to have to escalate this attack. And you're right. The Iranians are saying, we meant to do this. This was our plan. We we knew what we were doing. I mean, if you look back at one of his most, like, striking rebukes of President Obama, is that President Obama, you know, drew a red line in Syria and didn't do anything about it, that he let these other countries run all over us, that we're going to reposition American strength in the world, that we're going to, you know, have these more robust and forceful responses. You know, we're not going to let people run all over us. And in trade, you've seen him try to do that. And on some of these things, you've seen tough talk. But it's interesting that that criticism seems to be the thing that's challenging him or haunting him a little bit here is, you know, when you're sitting in the Oval Office and you're the one who has to authorize the bombs or authorize any sort of response and you're hearing from your military commanders, I mean, it's, you know, everyone's telling him the different ways it could go wrong and that this could, you know, one of these could go off and kill civilians or they might not go well. And it becomes a different challenge when you're in there. And I, I think we all... It's a reason why for all the criticism of presidents and, you know, there's no job like it, right? It's like why their little clique of presidents is so small and so insular because they've only felt the challenges of each other's felt. Josh Dossie covers the White House for The Post. Thanks so much for listening. Can He Do That will be back next week. Until then, you can find Can He Do That, Post Reports, Moonrise, and all of our other shows at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts.
If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. Now.